from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And I'm here with Steve Winnick, a folklife specialist at the center and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. Hi, folks. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that in October, I usually make a Halloween joke before leading you through some scary collections. But we've kind of been there and done that. And you can find those podcasts and blogs at loc.gov podcasts and blogs.loc.gov folklife. So the only scary thing I'll talk about today is how scary it is that time flies by so quickly. It will be six years ago on Christmas Day that our beloved colleague Peter Bardis passed away. But before he did, he made arrangements to fund a paid internship here at the American Folklife Center. For any of you who might have been with us since the first season, you might remember that this podcast started as a project that our first cohort of Bardis interns worked on in 2018. And here we are five years later. That's right, Steve. Our first two interns in the Bardis, or Folklife intern program, Trelawney Duncan and Mackenzie Kwok, helped write scripts, research collections, and even appeared as guests on an episode. This past summer, we hosted our sixth cohort of interns in the program, and we are now joined by Joe Z. Johnson and Dina Owens to talk about their primary projects and their time with us at the library. Welcome. Hello. Hi. So thanks for taking the time to be with us. And before we get into your work at the center, we should note that each of you wrapped up your internships and are no longer in the D.C. area. You finished in July, Joe, and Dina cleared out in August. So it's good to have you both back, at least virtually. Um, and why don't you tell us what you've each been up to since then and where you're joining from? So let's start with you, Dina. So yeah, after my last day, I spent another week in D.C. before moving on to Portland, Maine, where I spent a really wonderful Labor Day with my close friend, Samantha. Uh, from there, I returned home to Northwest Arkansas, and I'm currently joining you from my second home in Mullins Library at the University of Arkansas campus, where I work as the Folk Arts Assistant for Arkansas Folk and Traditional Arts. Great. Um, we certainly miss having you around, Dina. Uh, what about you, Joe? Well, after finishing my internship at the center, I went straight to the Appalachian String Band Music Festival, otherwise known as Clifftop, in West Virginia. There, I spent a week in fellowship with other traditional musicians, catching up with old friends, and playing lots of music. After Clifftop, I returned to teach classes at Indiana University Bloomington, where I'm currently in my fourth year as a PhD student in ethnomusicology. Wow, you've both certainly been busy with great fun and also great work in folklore and ethnomusicology, and we're delighted to see you again. Now, Joe, on the last day of your internship, the library published a research guide that you created, and that was the main project you worked on during your time at the center. So can you give us an overview of that guide? Yes, of course. So the research guide is a directory to the materials at the Library of Congress, primarily in the American Folklife Center, about African-Americans who play the banjo. It includes a selection of images, online collections and media, as well as print resources on African-American banjo players past and present. 
In addition, there is a large section that points folks towards the many hours and linear feet of field recordings, field notes, and publications by folklorists and ethnomusicologists who have done in-depth studies on African-American banjo players. Since I'm an ethnomusicologist and folklorist myself, this guide has helped me learn the breadth, depth, and limitations of the research that's come before me. It opened my eyes to the issues of representation that come up when a Black musical practice is mostly documented by white researchers. I'm planning to use this knowledge as supporting background for my dissertation research that will look at the politics of Black people teaching, learning, reinterpreting, and recovering the banjo as a Black instrument. As we noted while you were still here, Joe, and you know before you left, this is such a vital resource and, and so important for many people. Can you tell us a bit about the research process for the guide? Given the complexity and extent of the holdings in the archive of folk culture, I'm imagining you had to develop some strategies and skills. I definitely did. I was really fortunate to be mentored on this project by Melanie Zek, who's a reference librarian with the AFC. She was the one who helped me develop a matrix for pulling information on a culture group's African-Americans relationship to a physical object, the banjo, from multiple databases and holdings within the AFC and across the library. I used this matrix to map out a link chart that noted the names of people, places, and locations, and the relationship between them. That's why there were sticky notes all over my walls in the cubicle this summer. <laughs> <laughs> After weeks of systematically searching databases, analyzing paper files, and logging information in my citation management software, I grouped everything by media type. Then when I constructed the LibGuide, I went through each resource by type to write short descriptions of the holdings. This is when I realized how many of the resources depict African-American people as objects with no respect for our inner lives. With Melanie's guidance, I crafted my description of the archival materials to reflect the value of Black lives documented within. This process was where I chose to exclude the practice of blackface minstrelsy, which is a racist um, practice of imitating African-Americans. Ultimately, the guide became more than just a simple list of archival holdings. It's crafted as an educational tool that privileges black banjo life from the perspective of a black banjo player. Yeah, and you did an amazing job, and we all remember your sticky notes, too. <laughs> so we miss having you up there. But um, since this is a topic that you know so much about, which is like an understatement, really, um, I'm, I'm sure it's not fair to ask if you have one favorite recording from the archive, but I know you must have at least a playlist uh, of tunes that you'd love to share with us. Um, so if you could uh, just pick one at random, just uh, let us know what one of your favorite tunes is. Yeah, so one tune that I've been particularly fond of, or I guess one recording I've been fond of, is from Elizabeth Libba Cotton. She has a mashup of Here Old Rattler Here, Sent for My Fiddle, Sent for My Son, and Georgia Buck. It's a great demonstration of an African-American blues guitar player who is also well-versed in banjo technique. Great, let's hear that. Bye. 
the bucket then, don't lie smart he said, didn't want to shout it in his bread. That was a medley of banjo tunes by the great Elizabeth Cotton. It is one of many library resources featured in the research guide that Joe produced and published during his internship titled African American Banjo Music, Resources in the American Folklife Center. You can find the guide online at guides.loc.gov. Just search for banjo. We'll also link to it directly from the AFC blog in a post about this episode. Indeed, and there's also a post that Joe published on July 28th announcing the guide, which you can find on the Folklife Today blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. So one thing that Joe and Dina's internships had in common is that they each created research guides anchored in musical cultures. So Dina, your guide is on shape note singing or sacred harp traditions. Can you tell us a little bit about that guide? Sure. Um, the Shape Note Singing Guide is pretty much a gateway into learning about the tradition through the American Folklife Center archives. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Shape Notes replace the oval note heads with shapes that indicate a singing part. Um, in Shape Note Singing, that's a tenor, bass, alto, or treble instead of soprano. Um, singers use the syllables fa, sol, la, mi, like you learn from the sound of music, uh, depending on their range, um, to practice the pitch and the rhythm of the tune that's been called out to the group by a leader who then sets the tempo. Um, and in sound recordings of shape note songs, you'll hear someone call out a page number or the number of a tune from a songbook or a hymnal, and then you'll hear them sing it twice once for practice and the second with the lyrics. Um, so the resources in the research guide are from a variety of regions and showcase that shape note singing isn't just something from a long time ago, but it's also still a living tradition with diverse participants. Well, thanks, Dina. And I'll just mention that the American Folklife Center does have rich and varied shape note collections. The best place to look online now is Dina's guide, first of all, at guides.loc.gov. Um, which can lead you to many of our materials. And then also the Lomax Digital Archive at culturalequity.org, where there are over 150 selections of shape note singing from our collections. So, Dina, that guide is a great map to our collections. Now, Dina, what was your research process like? I remember talking with you early on in the internship after you pitched this project to me, and you said you were familiar with shape note singing from back home, but didn't know a lot about it or the research around it. So how did you approach exploring the collections? Yeah, that's a, 
it was a big task. It really did feel like I was back in school starting from scratch because I was creating something useful for researchers that I didn't know a lot about because I'm not an expert. So it was very intimidating to get started. So my first strategy was just to remember that the vision was that it would be entry level since Mm -hmm. I am not an expert. And working with Alina Magoni and Judith Gray, the reference librarians, uh, absolutely invaluable. Alina was particularly helpful because she um, gave me homework when I first got to the AFC to help me like glean the website and the research guides to kind of get my brain grounded in the work that goes on at AFC. Um, I had a few other ideas, but in the end, it ended up being a social media post from a friend of mine who organizes sacred harp singings um, locally, which are ones that I had been to before. And that finally inspired me um, on this topic. And so after deciding on the topic, um, it just so happened I had this unique opportunity to be able to engage with scholars and musicians familiar with Shape Note during the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, which just happened to be centered around the Ozarks where I'm from. So I asked um, all these musicians and scholars what they might like to see in a research guide or what they felt like more people should know about. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback I received was that they wanted more people to know that while four shaped note style is the most popular, there's also a seven shaped note style that needs more recognition as it tends to be broadly categorized as gospel music without distinction for its unique musical tradition. And so I was, as I was picking resources and gleaning the collections. I kept this in mind because I wanted to make sure that both styles were represented. And so uh, when I kind of landed on this, I went back to Alina and she educated me on um, the structure and the general voice to write in for the research guide and help me with my catalog searches. So she's kind of, you know, the MVP for this with me. <laughs> um, but I also don't think there's enough time for us to talk about the institution of Judith Gray and the AFC, because I swear, like one day I was just sitting there and she pulled out of thin air an essay on shape note singing. That was the most helpful thing for me in giving me a crash course on the history of it and um, the musical structure of, of the tradition. Um, yeah, Judith I'm, is fantastic. She's yeah. <laughs> so wonderful. And I am not an ethnomusicologist. So having that just one resource, I still don't know where she got it. She just said, I have a paper around here. And then it just appeared. Um, and so I absolutely have to give it up for Judith Gray on that. And I have to thank Joe. Um, Joe found the singing convention in the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project collection and sent that to me one day. And that was during a time when I was still trying to find the right searches and I was getting my bearings um, going through the collections. Um, because search terms are kind of an adventure with certain traditions. <laughs> um, so shape note singing and sacred harp are the main ones and you did pull out a lot of resources. Um, but sometimes the field notes that were being used for metadata only referred to singing conventions or harp singing. So I had to figure out like what vocabulary was being used through all these field notes. Um, and singing conventions might not have necessarily been shape note. So that's where me going and finding photographs was helpful because shape note singing has a hollow square formation where they arrange vocal parts. Um, so if the singing convention had a hollow square, it was probably a shape note convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there was a, a lot of my experience from working in libraries and archives really did come in handy because I had like a really good base for doing this level of research. 
Um, and honestly, I spent a lot of days sitting at my desk listening to um, audio selections. Um, like Steve mentioned, there is um, a lot of digital collections with a lot of examples. So it really wasn't a bad gig to you know sit around and listen to beautiful music all day. Um, and I do, and it helped me learn the different uh, the differences between the four and seven note styles. So and I think even up until that last day, um, there were still resources revealing themselves in the archives. So I really can't wait to see how this entry-level research guide, you know, grows and evolves over time. As, as I think I noted to you many times, Dina, it's never finished, right? And I think I had to tell Joe that too. <laughs> you know, you guys created these really solid bases and, and I love hearing how you all work together on that. Um, so Dina, is there a specific cut you'd like to share with us today? Yes, I'd like to share with you the tune, I'm Gonna Walk With Him, which is in the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project Collection. It was recorded in Chicago on May 22nd, 1977, and is an example of the seven note style. And as with most singings, as I mentioned before, you'll hear the tune twice, once with the syllables and the second with the lyrics. Walk in time with him, be present day, present day. I'm gonna serve 
We just heard a song from the Shape Note Singing Convention at the Stranger Home Baptist Church in Chicago in 1977, a song featured in the guide that Dina Owens created during her internship. The guide is called Shape Note Singing Resources in the American Folklife Center and can be found at guides.loc.gov. And we'll also put a link to it in the blog post about this episode on Folklife Today. And Dina, you also wrote a piece for the blog about your research guide, but the guide was not the only thing you did at the center during your internship. Can you share with us another opportunity or activity that stood out to you? There were so many wonderful opportunities uh, to be involved in activities at not only the AFC, but just generally at the Library of Congress. Um, I really appreciated being able to sit in with the teaching with primary sources, with the AIDS quilt materials. Um, and I always enjoyed seeing who was going to visit us in the reading room. It seemed like there were people there all the time. Sometimes there were people from back home. So it was nice to reconnect with old friends. Um, however, the one activity that I have gushed about the most was our visit to the National Audiovisual Conservation Center, NAVCC. Um, one of the things about me that I think kind of gets lost when I'm applying for jobs or talking to people is I am a huge movie nerd. And I've been interested in film and sound restoration since I was a child. I was sat in front of Turner Classic Movies all the time when I was a kid. And Silent Sunday Nights was, I was always tired at school on Monday because I had to stay up late and watch Silent Sundays. And so I really was, you know, very moved to be in that space. And I was holding back tears most of the day because I was surrounded by these outstanding and passionate people who were doing this like really cool cutting edge work. Uh, to preserve media, that's really very important to me. And, you know, standing in a vault and looking around at the nitrate canisters and seeing movies that I recognize and love was absolutely unreal for me because I'm just a poor kid from Arkansas. And it was just a really wild experience. Yeah, it's amazing to see the work that they do there. And it's it's so moving because some of the material is so fragile. I mean, literally can burst into flames, <laughs> you know, unprovoked that just um, watching how well they take care of it and how they've, how much they've thought through the process of preventing um, catastrophes and preventing other damage to the materials is really moving. So we agree with you on that. It's a great resource and we love to send people there to take a look at what they're doing. So Joe, what about you? I know you were involved in a range of things beyond the research guide. So what stands out to you as you think back on the internship? Well, like Dina, one of my favorite experiences with the library was our visit to the National Audiovisual Conservation Center. But in addition to this, I really appreciated getting to spend time working with the AIDS Memorial Quilt Collections. As a queer person, I found it incredibly powerful to learn about the lives and afterlives of queer ancestors who have come before me. It was encouraging to see the various educational projects that teachers were working on with the quilt, as well as the incredible care that Dr. Chauncey took with the curation of his workshops. It was a great way to remember those who were lost to the HIV AIDS epidemic, as well as a celebration of the medical advancements in HIV management and HIV preventative care. I'd always heard of and learned about the quilt's materials, but it was a whole other thing to actually get to touch and help patrons use them to teach future generations. Yeah, I was really happy you both were able to be there for those workshops with Dr. Chauncey, who was the, the Kugli Prize awardee for last year at the library, and, and to have you be able to, to support that activity, but also see some of the stuff the library does that not everyone gets to, to, to be you know, in the presence of. So thank you both for being part of that, too. 
It's always rewarding to hear from the interns about the range of opportunities they had and took while with us at the library. So thanks to both of you for sharing. Yeah, it's definitely fun to hear from you both about your experiences at the center. So we have two more questions for you, um, and one of them is a big one. So first, uh, can each of you share another song with us from your research guide? And then the big question, uh, what's next for you? And we can start with Dina. Sure. So for my final selection, um, it's featured in my research guide, and it's a song, Amazing Grace. Uh, this recording was done by Alan Lomax and George Pullen Jackson in August of 1942 at the Sacred Harp Singing Convention in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, the song's origin is a shape note uh, song called New Britain, but it evolved over the years and has become the tune that we love today. And for my big question of what's happening, um, I call myself a baby folklorist because I, I'm just getting started um, in my career. I've only been dedicated in folklore for maybe a couple of years. Um, and my focus right now is applying for graduate school. So I'll hopefully be in a program next fall, but your guess is as good as mine as where that might be. Um, so overall, the next year is just kind of living and learning. Um, this opportunity with the American Folklife Center has really opened some new doors for me and opened up my mind for what is possible in my life, both professionally and personally. It's kind of like a side quest that, you know, leaves you disoriented, but still has a huge impact on the outcome of the game. So like <laughs> that was, Great yeah, description. <laughs> that's because it, it really was like that. Like I was just plucked out of Arkansas, set in Washington, DC, and then plucked right back. Um, and it, it's a very um, disorienting process, but it is very rewarding. And I thank you all for um, allowing me this opportunity. Uh, well, we loved having you, and we're glad to be part of your side quest. Um, <laughs> let's listen to the recording first, and then, Joe, we'll hear from you. I'm only a, just a common show. I just drive people and go with people to sing. I'm, I'm not a singer. But I do thoroughly enjoy hearing. And I want you all to look on page 45, and let's sing that. All right. Oh, oh, oh,
So again, that was Amazing Grace from Alan Lomax's collection in Alabama in 1942. So Joe, uh, what are you up to next? Next for me? Well, (laughs) I've been working with the Oakland Public Conservatory to start building out a series of classes on African-American fiddle and banjo playing. A lot of the work is going to be inspired by the materials I got to spend time with while working at the American Folklife Center. We're hoping to launch the first program in 2024. Wow, that just sounds like such an amazing opportunity for people to learn about African-American fiddle and banjo playing, which, you know, as you know, has been neglected for so long. And having you there to help put together these workshops is going to be just amazing, these classes. It just sounds like something that everybody should flock to. So we really hope that that takes off for you. It sounds wonderful. Indeed. Um, Thanks. So we're going to let your second audio selection, Joe, play us out. But first, we need to thank everyone. So first in line are you two. Thanks, Joe and Dina, for all the great work you did while interning at the center. And thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for having me. And also thanks for the opportunity to work with you all this summer. Well, we loved having you both. It was it was fantastic. You guys are both welcome. Um, we'd also like to offer thanks to all of the artists featured in this episode, as well as our engineer, John Gold, and the team at the library who help us deploy the podcast episodes. And of course, thanks to you, Steve. Thanks to you as well, John. And Joe, what are we going to hear now? Next up, we're going to hear Dink Roberts' Cuckoo Bird from the album Black Banjo Songsters of North Carolina and Virginia. Dink Roberts was an African-American banjo player and multi-instrumentalist from Haw River, North Carolina. In the song, Dink demonstrates his deeply expressive storytelling practice, as well as his otherworldly banjo technique. The audio was recorded as part of the Cecilia Conway and Tommy Thompson recording project in 1974. has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.